domestication is an enormous part of what we would think of as agriculture. We've been doing it almost as long as we've been planting well, plants. Early farmers began to plant wild grains around 11,000 years ago, and people started to domesticate the first pigs, sheep, and cattle around 10,000 years ago. The domestication of livestock has led to a more stable food supply. It gave people draft animals for hauling things and tilling the fields. But there have also been drawbacks, such as new diseases and other environmental considerations. So how did we do this, and why, and when, and what does domestication look like today? Find out in this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margo. And I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of season three and subscribe to get notified every time we post. Right, so this week I'm going to be talking about agriculture, specifically agriculture with domesticated animals. So agriculture in general is the practice of cultivating plants and livestock, and as I said in the introduction, people have had domesticated animals for over 10,000 years. So when it comes to domestication, it wasn't a single event, obviously, but rather a repeated process where groups of people would find animals that were amenable to domestication in some way and would then begin the process of basically taming and then domesticating these creatures. So for a lot of situations, um, like goats or sheep, um, and also things like cattle, a lot of these are animals that are in flocks and in groups. So if you can sort of herd and control this group, you are able to sort of lead them around and they'll follow you, especially if you are feeding them. And, you know, if you put them into a pen, you can sort of keep them contained. There are also animals like the dog, where they are, again, a form of pack animal. So, right, they are quite amenable to domestication because they are happy to sort of fit into, you know, basically human interactions. Like, right, they want to form bonds. They are willing to form these bonds with humans. Most animals are not domesticatable. Um, technically, cats aren't 100% domesticated <laughs> yet. Um, they are, you know, the, cats are domestic house cats, but that is why they basically are feral if they aren't raised around people, right? So there's a small group of animals that actually lend themselves to becoming good livestock, and a lot of them happened to live in and around, you know, the Fertile Crescent area in the Middle East. Fertile Crescent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where basically you have a bunch of river valleys and people are able to farm there. And when, they're, when they have settled agriculture, because remember, settled growing of plants predates domesticating animals by about a thousand years. Right. So if you're able to... Domesticate the thing that can't run away first. Yes, precisely. It's, it's easier to domesticate the thing that you just need to pick the seeds and then plant them where you want them. 
it's, it's much harder to convince a cow to stay where you put it. And essentially that is what you are looking at. So pigs were domesticated in the Near East, sheep and goats were the Fertile Crescent, and then cattle seem to have originated in both what is modern-day Turkey and Pakistan around 85,000 BC. So that's kind of our <laughs> geographic area where these animals are cropping up. But obviously as people are moving and they are trading and, you know, kind of dispersing throughout different areas, they bring their animals with them. And then yeah. that's how you get, right, these animals being introduced throughout, you know, basically the quote-unquote old world. So you get all kinds of domestic animals throughout this region. Horses, though, were a different matter because they actually come relatively late to the game. They occur naturally in the steppes of Central Asia, and they were only domesticated about 3,000 in 3,000 BC. What's wrong? Nothing. I just I like the the horses occur naturally. <laughs> I that's, I'm I'm that's where they occur naturally. That's where they spring up out of the ground. <laughs> It just makes it sound like they're like a rock formation. <laughs> anyway, so they were... They I don't know a better way to say game. it, but... Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. They are naturally occurring rock formation. <laughs> naturally occurring horses. <laughs> but this is around the time where people start to domesticate them, and they were initially used for meat, but very soon after people realized, oh... Horses are very good at carrying people. They go very mm. fast. <laughs> I will ride them. And then soon after, you actually see camels domesticated because people start looking at a horse and then they look at the camel and they look at the horse and they look at the camel <coughs> and they look at the horse and they look at the camel and say, Lumpy horse? Lumpy horse. <laughs> Desert horse. This is my lumpy horse. <laughs> so basically, uh, th these are things that took place for thousands of years. And because people, right, in order to domesticate these animals, you are living in close proximity to them. You are making sure that they're fed, that they're watered, that, you know, you're tending to injuries that they might get. If you're a shepherd, you're herding your sheep, or a goat herd, herding the goats. If you... You know, you have to shear your sheep, you need to milk your cows, you need to do all these things. So people develop these very close relationships with them, and as such, there are lots of rituals and customs and folklore that spring up around domesticated animals. And that is what I want to talk about today, the use of these animals, and also the symbolic, folkloric, and mythological uh, uses of them. Excellent. In the ancient world, obviously, animals have their primary purpose, which is, you know, cows give milk, fowl give eggs, pigs give meat, goats can give milk and meat, sheep, wool, and sometimes milk, sometimes meat, right. etc. Leather. Uh, bones can be turned into either jewelry and ornaments or into tools, right? There's lots of things you can do practically with them. 
But another important function of domesticated animals in ancient cultures was animal sacrifice. So we see this across a variety of cultures and uh, religions where the idea that sacrificing an animal, and in particular the best animal, is a preferred sacrifice to anything else and that this is how you appease the deities the gods the what have you gotta give god the bestest animal you do gotta give god the bestest animal so (laughs) right i mean we have right zeus needs the best animal because he's definitely gonna have sex with it yes (laughs) but also um like i'm actually going to start us off in judaism okay so basically let's start out in genesis where we have in judaism right the story of cain and abel where they are supposed to be the sons of adam and eve and they both go to make their offering to god cain has been you know tilling the earth and he makes his plant offerings but then his brother abel the chad shows up with the best of his flock he brings the best animal and sacrifices that to god so then god cain and chad (laughs) abel the virgin cain versus the chad abel and god's like yeah this one's way better like animal sacrifice way way better do better if you want to be hot Yes. And you want God to love you, and you want to get all the Beckys. And eat the Stacys. <laughs> oh, right, Stacys. Yeah, Beckys mean, are the ones, Beckys are the girls who read, and yes. Stacys are the bimbos. Yes. I so, can't but, remember. Yeah. I don't, clearly I don't spend enough time on my incel website. Can't believe you're not out here. There's no way that this story is not going to get derailed every time we do this. Yeah, I'm just going to keep going. This is the second <laughs> attempt at this one. So anyway, the point is, uh, Cain then gets real mad, murders Abel. He commits the first murder, and God's like, not cool, man. You killed my favorite one. Yeah, exactly. He's like, so now I just have this like worse brother. Also, heard it here first, incels. Maybe don't murder people, because God will hate you. (laughs) Yes, agreed. Also, don't eat a plant-based diet. Yeah. Because then God also hates you, apparently. So anyway, the point is, (laughs) we see, right, this example of an animal sacrifice being seen as better than, you know, other agricultural surplus that you could have sacrificed. And this does remain through um, within Judaism that the most common usages of animal sacrifice typically would be a bull, a sheep, a goat, or a dove. There could also be sacrifices of grain or wine or incense, but some form of an animal sacrifice is, or or was, you know... (laughs) historically more common we also see this in the greco-roman world so in greece worship was mostly consisted of a lot of sacrificing of domestic animals at the altar of whichever god or goddess you were trying to appease um, along with hymns and prayers so the altar could be outside of any temple building or it could be right like we've talked about before a sacred 
grove, a sacred place in mm-hmm. nature. The point is it had to be a sacred place. And the animal should be perfect of its kind. So, you know, you it, it didn't count if you showed up and were like, here's this sickly old goat that's like <laughs> on its last legs and is missing an eye. It's like, no, it has to be the best animal that you have. Like, it should be perfect. And so then, Bubba. Oh, Bubba would be a terrible sacrifice. <laughs> he is perfect. Bubba is Margot's three-legged cat <laughs> who screams all day long. You would sacrifice that, and then Zeus would come down and be like, He's no. He's my perfect baby boy. <laughs> Luna would be a perfect sacrifice. Luna's good, too. Belle would be a perfect sacrifice. Belle's good, too. None of them are good sacrifices, though, because they're cats. They're cats, <laughs> and we love them too much. So, in ancient Greece, the animal would then be decorated, often with things like flower garlands and, you know, little, yeah, basically, (laughs) like, you know, like flowers and vines and leaves all woven together and Mm -hmm. would be led to the altar in a procession. (laughs) And there would be a girl typically leading this animal, and she would have a concealed knife that would be used to slaughter the animal. And then there would be assorted rituals, and the animal would be slaughtered over the altar. And then, this is this is an important part, that all the women present must cry out in shrill, high tones. Because <laughs> you need to properly mourn this animal, right? right. That it's, it's very sad. And then the blood is poured over the altar. Okay. And then the animal would be butchered on the spot, and any parts like bones and internal organs and you know kind of inedible parts would often be burnt as the deity's portion while the actual meat would be prepared to be eaten by the participants waste not want not Mm -hmm. and also the temple would typically sell the skin of the animal to tanners later on Um, so again like this animal was still being you know thoroughly respected and used (laughs) like yes there was the burnt portion of the offering but people were also eating it and using the leather and the order of preference in greek tradition was a bull or an ox followed by a cow followed by a sheep which would have been the most common followed by goats then pigs and finally poultry And this seems to just be in terms of how valuable the animal was, right? So, like, a bull or an ox is very large. Like, it's hard to keep them, (laughs) especially in Greece, where there isn't a lot in the way of, like, wide-open pasturage. So, you know, if you were able to sacrifice a bull or an ox or even a cow, it was like, oh, wow, that's, like, you know, you're really... You're really balling out here. Whereas, you know, a sheep or a goat, that's much easier to keep. It's much, you know, much less expensive, basically. And then, you know, poultry and pigs would be the lowest end of the spectrum because pigs eat literal trash and (laughs) poultry eat just like, yeah, you need to give them seeds maybe. But for the most part at this point, they're probably eating like, bugs and things they find on the ground so it's not as you know it's not that same prestige sacrificing (laughs) a chicken 
Similarly, in ancient Rome, the most potent offering was, again, an animal sacrifice, and it would again be cattle, sheep, and pigs. It again had to be the best specimen of its kind. It would be clean, clad in different regalia and garlands and flowers. And apparently, in some cases, the horns of oxen would be gilded, so then they would be all shiny and pretty for the sacrifice. The other thing is the sacrifice was meant to kind of harmonize between, you know, the earthly, mortal, mundane realm and the divine realm. So you didn't want your animal sacrifice to be upset, basically, or struggling. So it had to be very quickly and cleanly killed. Right. Because if it was disharmonious, right, then it kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. And... In Rome, there was some, in the Roman traditions, there's some interesting disparity, right, between, like, which, depending on which god specifically you were sacrificing to, you mm -hmm. needed certain conditions. So deities of the heavens had to be performed in the daylight and under the public gaze. Okay. And particularly deities of the upper heavens, so, like, you know, the the pantheon we would think of like juno and jupiter and stuff they required white infertile victims of their own sex so juno's preferred like sacrifice would be a white cow right oh, okay. or jupiter would be whereas jupiter would be a white castrated ox and then you would also have ones who are a little bit closer to the earth like the ones who aren't like the highest echelon so say mm -hmm. mars or neptune or janus they could be offered fertile victims so like an uncastrated animal mm -hmm. right or a immature female animal okay and then after that sacrifice which was done in public then there would be a banquet held and everyone would again eat the meat but if you had the I'm going to mispronounce this. The Ketonic gods, um, which are the gods below, right? Uh, so okay. if you are sacrificing to gods of the underworld or the making sacrifices for the de departed, then you needed to give dark, fertile victims in nighttime rituals. So you would need, like, you know, a black or brown cow or sheep or whatever, and mm -hmm. it would have to be done at night, and there would be no public, like fanfare about it um and you typically would secret cow murder secret cow murder exactly <laughs> and there would be no shared banquet because the idea was the living cannot eat a meal with the dead oh so yeah spooky. I, I just thought the the spooky ritual was kind of interesting <laughs> spooky spooky then as for um kind of northern europe there's not as much known because of course at this point there's not as many written records so everything we know is kind of second or third hand you know the romans writing down what they perceived as going on right like when they yeah. went into like what they saw people doing on the british isles or what they saw people doing in like germanic communities right yeah but from what we see it does Basically, it, there does seem to be animal sacrifice going on in Celtic paganism and in, like, Teutonic, Germanic, Norse paganism. Potentially, 
human sacrifice, but like how much and how often is a cause for debate to basically. Right. Um, but it does seem that, you know, it was a similar situation of sacrificing, you know, again, a, the best of the animals you couldn't sacrifice like the weak ones or the sickly or whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, it seems like from the writings we have that the people involved would have also eaten the meat of these animals afterwards. Right. There's also, though, a lot of, there is, like, more so folklore around certain animals that we do have that survives in Celtic and Norse lore. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Norse mythology, we have Odumbla, who is the primeval cow. (laughs) So the primordial frost Jotun Ymir fed from her milk and over... (laughs) Over three days, she licked away the salt on the rocks to reveal Buri, who's the grandfather of the gods. She is mentioned in the Prose Edda, which does come from the 13th century, but they're basically through, like, fragments and Mm -hmm. other traditions. There seems to be that she was linked to these earlier mythologies as well, um, and that potentially there was this right like primordial cow associated goddesses (laughs) um we also have fleetus in irish mythology who was a female figure who is known to have been a goddess of cattle and fertility and we also have mocus in celtic lore who is the boar god of the lingone tribe who inhabited what is now France, because, right, you had, Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Um, And boars, while not technically being domesticated, right, it's this, like, idea he's the god of pigs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that these were some little interesting tidbits as well, seeing different gods and goddesses associated with these specifically, right? Because, like, Mm -hmm. there are gods associated with agriculture, and Mm -hmm. we have right like domesticated animals in stories so like the time in greek myth where hermes steals 50 cows from apollo um but i thought it was worth mentioning that there were also gods and goddesses associated specifically with right like cattle and that sort of thing now once you get into the middle ages sacrifice of animals becomes pretty thin on the ground because (laughs) you know um as the european continent becomes christianized christianity is not thrilled with the idea of animal sacrifice there has been long opposition to any form of animal sacrifice because right there's the idea that the sacrificial death of christ permanently abolished animal sacrifice and Mm -hmm that sacrifice right because he is the lamb of god so we don't need to do actual animal sacrifice anymore however that being said despite this opposition there were still rural christian communities who would continue to do animal sacrifices um it was something that you know obviously is hard to stamp out entirely because 
what are you going to do? Tell people, no, don't kill your pig or don't kill your sheep, right? Like, it's something that survived for at least a certain amount of time, and at least for the first probably few generations after the initial waves of Christianization, right? Um, and also, we do still see it that even up to this day, there are some rural Christian communities who sacrifice animals as part of worship, especially at Easter. So some villages in Greece sacrifice animals to Orthodox saints, um, and there's also churches in Ethiopia and Eritrea where um, sacrificing a lamb or a rooster is still common. So that was just a fun little side note. But hmm. by and large, uh, animal sacrifice becomes no bueno. However, livestock remain super, super important, obviously, in the Middle Ages, uh, even more so in Northern Europe than they had in the Mediterranean. So in the Mediterranean, right, you have dry weather in the summer, and this reduces the fodder that's available for animals. And I mean, we even see up till today, right, this concept of the Mediterranean diet where, yeah, you're not eating a ton of like meat meat like you're probably going to eat more so grains and mm -hmm. vegetables and yogurt and cheese and fish and seafood of different kinds and then actual meat because it's harder to raise in that climate would have been relatively you know yeah relatively rare in in your diet whereas it especially in northern europe especially in the earlier middle ages was much more common for people to be eating larger amounts of meat from pigs, from cattle, from sheep, maybe from goats to a certain extent, right? Because especially in Northern Europe, um, these herds of cattle were often, right, like your form of wealth. And that is what you would have been surviving off of in a lot of cases would have been more so your animals. However, as the population grew, it became less and less sustainable to eat so much animal products and so as i've talked about previously you would clear more land grow more grain and grain and other um, legumes and pulses and things like that supplanted meat in a lot of diet however animals were still incredibly important because that was still going to be a big source of your protein of your fat and particularly with regards to things like pigs and chickens where they can kind of eat whatever's around mm -hmm. um it's basically a way of waste disposal <laughs> and you know giving you a lot of good protein and fat dense food at at any point um well with with pigs obviously and then mm -hmm. with with uh poultry you wouldn't be slaughtering them but you would be keeping them for eggs yeah cattle were extremely vital though because that is what you need to pull the plows in the denser heavier soils of northern europe so we still see people in europe in the middle ages still having these very you know living in close proximity with their animals and being very dependent upon them and they do still factor into a lot of the folklore and the religious lives of people at this period so we tend to see animals crop up in a variety of saints' stories. Um, for example, we have St. Kieran of Ireland. In his life story, 
his family owned a herd of cattle and he initially was working at herding his family's cows but as he got older he was drawn to the church and went into study and went and joined a monastery and the story goes that as he was leaving saint kieran left his home and asked for permission from his family to take one cow with him and his mother said no you can't take a cow with you like we need we need these animals but as he left he blessed one of the cows and then the cow followed him <laughs> with her calf all the way to the monastery <laughs> and she was known as the dun cow which is um like grayish brown color and was referred to as saint kieran's dun cow and apparently she became like somewhat of a miracle (laughs) because she had the ability to supply the entire monastery with milk and remained the saint's companion for the rest of her life and when she died her cowhide was kept as a relic at the monastery so it's this very sweet little story about <laughs> about Saint Kieran and this cow. Aww. Right, and that's sort of from the earlier Middle Ages. Similarly, we get stories from Gregory of Tours, who wrote about the extraordinary behavior of animals in relation to Christianity, right? So there is a story in 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 his Lives of the Saints collection, where he's talking about animals that come to visit the Basilica of St. Julian. And he writes that ill-behaving calves, kicking horses, and grunting pigs became quiet when they entered the Basilica's precincts. And that bulls that were formerly unmanageable became, quote, like meek lambs when led to the church. And we see a lot of this in different saint writing and other like other other religious literature of the time that one hallmark of these stories is often that like animals become drawn to you and that this is you know a show of how holy a place is or how holy the saint is because animals who are like natural and they are part of god's creation and they you know, they, they are naturally drawn to this goodness, right? Um, and then we have later additions to, you know, the saints, such as St. Francis of Assisi, who Yay. was around, you know, this is the high Middle Ages at this point, where he died in 1226. So this is getting on in the Middle Ages a little bit. And he was an Italian Catholic friar, deacon, and mystic. He, or, he actually founded the Order of Friars Minor and the Women's Order of St. Clair, but he's known as the patron saint of animals, and a lot of the stories that come up around him is, you know, his benevolence to these animals and how, you know, birds would come and sit on his hand and animals would be drawn to him and approach him. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, again, it's showing this mentality of, like, this is having animals come to you in this way is a sign of holiness and goodness and that animals have this like understanding of like oh this is a good person right and again like I'm not trying to say that there's any 
it's certainly in the Middle Ages not how we would think of today, like the way we would think of pets, right? Like you're not viewing, for the most part, your pigs and cows and stuff the way that you'd be viewing, like, you know, the way people sometimes talk today about like, you know, oh, like this this puppy is my baby. Like I, <laughs> I love them so much. It's like, no, these are still farm animals. Like you still like are. My, my baby boy, Ian. Yes, precisely. But like you are not going to kill Ian and eat him. Um, whereas farm animals, you are still very much going to kill and eat them. Yeah. But, you know, there's this idea of, okay, this is the circle of life. This is how <laughs> things are. But I'm still going to respect and honor you. Um, another tradition we see out of this is that it's quite common in Eastern Europe that there's traditions of feeding the animals first on Christmas Eve as a recognition both of farm animals' presence at Christ's birth in the manger and also as an acknowledgement that, like, you should care for and respect your animals and, you know, give them, like, due consideration because they feed you, basically. Right. yeah. Uh, but coming up into the modern day... We now have factory farms, which means that, you know, we don't have these relationships necessarily with animals the way that we used to. And this is a problem on many fronts. <laughs> From the perspective of ecology and global climate change, livestock are one of the most significant contributors to this problem, or rather the way that we raise livestock are one of the most significant issues. Um, livestock production uses up about 70% of all agricultural land, and uh, that makes up about 30% of the land surface of the planet. Mm. So that's a lot. And it is one of the largest sources of greenhouse gases. Um, just on its own, like just raising them is about... like is 18% uh, of the gas emissions, whereas all transportation emits 13.5% of the CO2. So it's a lot. It also, uh, livestock expansion is a big part of deforestation. Um, so like in the Amazon basin, of the area that has been cleared, 70% of it was to raise cattle and other animals on which then you know again drives further land degradation it means that we have fewer trees capturing carbon it's just an all-round not great thing for the planet it's also not good for the animals yeah. intensive animal farming otherwise known as industrial livestock production is not good for animals. <laughs> Not the vibe. They, it harms wildlife, the environment, and creates basically a lot of ethical issues around the abuse of animals. Aww. So, you know, as I was talking about earlier, right, like chickens and other fowl, their normal situation would have been being outdoors, eating bugs and seeds that they find and then being fed you know maybe grain or other seeds that you had maybe in some cases um like like any like scraps and stuff like that mm -hmm. but in the 20th century poultry production was revolutionized when people discovered vitamin d um, because then that made it possible to keep chickens in confinement year round because they no longer needed to go 
outside to get vitamin D. Um, and this basically meant that you could have these large farms and packing plants where you could basically just keep chickens in a warehouse. Um, and then they are not treated very well there. You also have intense pig farms or hog lots, which basically keep pigs again, whereas previously pigs would have been, yes, they would have been kept in a pen and they would have been fed scraps and occasional, like, especially in the fall, they would have been driven into the forest to eat acorns and that kind of thing. Whereas here they basically spend all their time in these confined stalls uh, again generally in large warehouse like being warehouse like settings where they are not treated very well um, and then you have cows which are also not treated very nicely and are subject to a lot of abuses because they basically move from one feedlot to another and rather than grazing on grass and being outside as they should, you know, in, in their naturally occurring forms, <laughs> um, they are instead given things like barley and other grains and... It's bad for all their tummies. It's very bad for their tummies and it, again, they really shouldn't be confined and made yeah. to just like hang out in one place it also causes a lot of human health problems um especially because there's this uh there's a higher risk of e coli contamination because of 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 foods because of these situations mm -hmm. and that's not all folks <laughs> here we go um, there's also the issue of labor with this type of industrialized farming where small farmers are normally, yeah. like, it's very hard to thrive. So you get absorbed into this factory farm operation and, you know, you basically aren't able to make it on your own. So then even if you wanted to treat your animals kindly, you cannot compete with those market prices. Um, so you basically have to get absorbed into this, like big corporation mm -hmm. um and in particular it's even worse if you are an immigrant worker or other um like marginalized farm worker who's working for one of these places for wages um because it's often very dangerous people are given very little or sometimes no actual training they often don't have proper PPE. There's a lot in the way of workplace accidents and injuries. And just in general, the things like work hours aren't really well <laughs> regulated in any way. And like mm -hmm. work workers, like safety and health isn't taken into consideration. And the last big problem is the concentration of the market, right? So this major concentration of the industry means that there's like when you look at say the u.s there's essentially four big companies that are slaughtering and processing like 80 percent of meat yeah. in the whole country yeah um and to to put this into perspective right of like just one small tidbit in 1967 there were one million pig farms in america 
in 2002, there were 114,000. So from 1 million to 114,000. That's not good. In a few decades. That's not good. It is not good. Because whether we are talking about, like, I'm not here to talk about the ethics of eating meat in general or animal products in general. That's a whole other (laughs) discussion. However, I think we can all agree that factory farming is not it. No. (laughs) And this is something where I do think that, yes reducing the amount of factory farmed food that you personally consume is great good job keep doing that but the bigger things that really matter in this are legislation so if this is something that you are concerned about thinking about um basically i i would really recommend calling legislators and also getting involved in whatever local government, whatever local organizations that you have because a lot of in in a lot of cases in uh, in many countries right the government is subsidizing yeah. a lot of this and there's a lot of right assistance basically being given out yeah. from the government to prop up these multi-billion dollar factory farm corporate situations and the more that can be done to push back on that to regulate this industry to regulate how animals are being treated which there have been some wins recently <laughs> like there are um you know animal welfare organizations that have been pushing back on this there are right like groups of farmers basically saying hey we would like to have some regulation here so that these companies can't just come in and buy up everything. So that's my that's my little bit of hope for the end of this episode is you know it doesn't have to be bad. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this like it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> and to quote an American tale, if we all work together, we can do something about the problem. There are no cats in America. <laughs> because all six of them were. They got rid of all six cats. But also, to quote Captain Planet, with your yes. powers combined. Exactly. We can change the world. Precisely. <laughs> See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. This project is made possible by our patrons. If you liked what you heard here, please check out our YouTube channel, our social media, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.